listening to Shakespeare and Contemporary Theory with Nima Parvini. My guest this week is Jeffrey R. Wilson, who, like many of us, uh, watched the US election very closely and since the result has been thinking very hard about what it means. He has also written uh, a very interesting essay called Public Shakespeareanism, the Bard in the 2016 American presidential election, which is available on request uh, from him. You can find details of his email address in the show notes. Uh, he has also written uh, another interesting essay called Why Shakespeare? And again, uh, I think you may be able to email him for a copy of that. One of the things that Wilson has been thinking about is why it was that public Shakespeareans, that is people who have uh, written and published on Shakespeare, why did these figures feel compelled and indeed qualified to comment on the election? He argues uh, that Shakespeare scholars were uniquely positioned to comment on the 2016 US presidential election because the election exhibited the tone, characters and structure of a Shakespearean tragedy. There was first a traditionally noble protagonist whose fatal mistake led to a surprising and disproportionately large catastrophe. There was also an unceremonious, ignoble antagonist who provided comic relief but who also exploited an economically stratified society filled with suffering, fear, anger and resentment. I hope you enjoy this episode. We get into some quite interesting topics. Well, hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Shakespeare and Contemporary Theory. Uh, my guest uh, this week is Jeffrey Wilson. How are you doing, Jeffrey? I'm well, thank you, Nima. And, uh, well, I will just get straight in with my first question, and in, in a change from the norm, um, I usually start these interviews by asking scholars about how the intellectual climate change between the start of their careers and now, but today I want to ask if you think the intellectual climate has changed between two weeks ago, that was when Donald Trump was elected as the President of the United States, and now, um, where that statement that once seemed uh, you know, just want something people openly mocked it is now actually a reality. Uh, do you see Trump's election as having an impact on the sort of work that we do as literary scholars? There has been an impact, yes. I, I think to kind of situate it in terms of the larger uh, cultural aspect or, or cultural atmosphere. Um, so I, my school is a liberal bubble within a liberal bubble within a liberal bubble and for me the day after the election uh was something i like i had never seen before there was massive sadness and confusion and uncertainty on the subway to work no one was making eye contact with each other for me the one one reaction that, that resonated with a number of friends that I spoke with was my son Liam's reaction, who he had, you know, we had tried to shield him from, uh, he's four years old, from American electoral politics as much as possible, but he had certainly heard things, you know, people making comments that, that Donald Trump was not a good man, which, you know, when you're a four-year-old, you're, you're taught that you should do the right thing, and the night after the election, we hadn't told him anything about the election, but he'd heard at school, you know, he comes home and he says, uh, as, as his mother was putting him to bed, that Trump won the election. And she says, yes, sweetie, I know. And and he starts uh, breaking down in tears. And she says, sweetie, why, why are you sad? And he says, I don't know. And I think for a lot of us, that just massive confusion, not understanding why this thing happened, uh, was the the the, the most uh, felt response to the election in the in the immediate aftermath? I will say that I, I hate to be sentimental here, but I think the most lasting damage of Trump's election won't be the policies put in place, which I think can be mollified by checks and balances or reversed over time. But uh, the message sent out to the citizens of America, especially young girls and boys, about how to achieve success. Lying, cheating, and fear-mongering are now demonstrable paths to the presidency. And so getting back to your initial question about the intellectual atmosphere, 
Uh, one thing that was important for me to do in my classroom and for a number of colleagues at my university to do was to, uh, it was important for people in positions of authority, uh, parents, teachers, ministers, governors, to positively affirm the value of honesty, kindness, respect for the dignity of all human beings, mm-hmm. and the community's commitment to offer protection and support for anyone inside or outside that community who was afraid or sad or uncertain. And frankly, I've always had uh, pretty strong progressive politics, but I've in the past viewed those kinds of gestures as a little precious. But at, at this point in uh, life and in our, our educational situation, it, it became, I think, necessary. So at, at home, the, the question was, how do we explain this to our kids at at work, the question for educators was, how do we explain this to our students? How do we talk about this in class? I was fortunate in, in my school. Um, we have a, an email blast that goes out each morning with you know research that's being done around campus and events that are happening. And we had a number of experts who were coming from a position of disciplinary knowledge uh, were, were asked to comment and, and on the election. So, for example, we had a professor of public health talking about the future of Obamacare. We had a political scientist talking about populism in the U.S. and abroad. For me, my, my question was, was, what's the disciplinary perspective of, of my course, which at the time I was teaching a first-year writing course, um, you know, what is sometimes called freshman composition. It was a Shakespeare section. And so I was coming from the two perspectives of an introduction to academic knowledge and writing and from the perspective of Shakespeare studies. Just to kind of situate this a little bit, we had I had I had planned the, the schedule so we were going to read Richard the uh, Third in the month before the election and House of Cards the uh, American version of the British adaptation because I was I was thinking when I was assigning texts oh it'll be high election season and everyone will want to talk about politics and then the election season happened and, and yeah. no one wanted to talk about. <laughs> Politics. Oh, and I think we probably do need to situate this further that that you're in uh, at Harvard, is that right, Jeffrey? Right. I, I teach at Harvard. I teach in the writing program at Harvard, and and so my course is meant to introduce students to the protocols of of academic argumentation and interpretation, and uh, they they ask experts in in various fields, and so I teach the Shakespeare section of that course. But but when we we were thinking about when I introduced the the fact that we we're going to be doing Richard III and House of Cards around the time of election season, I, I framed it in terms of Stanley Fish's argument about professional correctness, which I'm pretty sympathetic to. He he uh, is suspicious when academics who are not experts in in the fields of politics and government go beyond the the limits of their disciplinary bounds to uh, polemicize or pontificate or uh, instruct students on moral and political ideas. And so, but the way that I framed it was that we are going to be thinking, this is a course about academic writing and academic writing at at its core is about the search for truth. And we are going to be thinking about the fact that truth was obviously a uh, problematic issue in, in the American election. And on the one hand, uh, I, I, I told students I won't be uh, doing politics, I won't be polemicizing. On the other hand, I think we need to not be fearful to speak the truth when we see it. And if we have, for example, a candidate who has a demonstrable aversion to truth, we need to describe that and, and try to explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the, the day after the election, when our course gathered, we thought about what it means that one of the candidates for the president and the person who was elected president uh, has a penchant for flouting the truth, that Trump has shown a disregard for facts, honesty, science, 
and knowledge derived from academic as well as military experts, that is something that is true. If you do not accept that that is true, then you also have an aversion to truth. Mm -hmm. So the question now becomes for us in a class which is about academic writing, how do we interpret evidence responsibly? Uh, what is the significance of the fact that the United States has now elected a president who flouts the truth? What is the status of truth in a post-Trump world? That was one way that we approached the question of the election in our classrooms. Another way was to look at the essay by David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, uh, who wrote that the election of Donald Trump was a, an American tragedy and that this was, he said, nothing less than a tragedy for the American Republic, a tragedy for the Constitution, and a triumph for the forces of nativism, authoritarianism, misogyny, and racism, which to me uh, was highly offensive, not as an American citizen, in which I tended to agree with Remnick's analysis, but as as a literary critic, someone who studies tragedy, someone who, who knows that a tragedy doesn't simply mean that something bad has happened, that instead tragedy has been is, is a uh, highly formal and has a long history a literary device. And the way that we talked about it was with respect to the idea of hamartia and the idea that sometimes people who are good and virtuous and do almost everything right can make small mistakes that cause catastrophes to happen and that those catastrophes are disproportionate in size to the severity of the mistake that was made. And this for us was a way to think about how it was that the narrative uh, that 20 years of Washington and Clintonian corruption was symbolized in Hillary Clinton's emails came to dominate the American election mm-hmm. story, uh, that, that frankly, this was a person who had given her life to public service, did everything right, and in the words of President Obama, was the most qualified person ever to run for the office, but that that mistake that she made in handling her emails, whether it was the initial mistake in setting up a server or the ongoing mistakes and her uh, miscalculation of how to handle that in public, uh, had a disproportionately severe effect upon the outcome of the election. I, I've been following this election pretty pretty uh, closely, uh, Jeffrey, as you know, and uh, it, over the past couple of weeks, I, I don't think I've ever uh, spent as long um, kind of in a kind of post-mortem phase looking at exactly what's happened. And uh, as I think most people who are engaged in any way with politics have have been. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's this been there's been this intense uh, desire to know why this happened and. and the, yeah. In the immediate aftermath of the election, um, the many of the, the public figures who were involved in it, uh, Clinton, Obama, and Trump, were calling for reconciliation and let's move on and let's forget about the acrimonious past, which I think a, a lot of academics, uh, there was a, a, a tension between that desire and the equally valid desire to understand why this thing happened. Sure. And uh, just before we uh, move on with this, I have to ask you, um, I mean, I've been looking at some of the narratives that have come out of this. And, you know, what one of them is that it's all about the Rust Belt and former industrial, uh, former industrial uh, parts of the country and parts of um, just just as uh, happened here with uh, with Brexit that, um, you know, essentially, this is a, a long apply for the damage that was done in the 1980s by Reagan and Thatcher, um, mm-hmm. with a, you know a kind of backlash against neoliberalism. That's one narrative that uh, I've seen, and then the narrative that I've seen, and it, it, it seems to have been coming through louder almost in this second or or, or even third week. Um, it has it has been that in some way this is a backlash against identity politics and political correctness, and I'm sure you've seen some aspect uh, of that narrative in the coverage that you've seen as well. I particularly noted that universities got it in the neck pretty strongly. Um, you know, there's a lot been a lot of talk about safe spaces and, um, you know, a kind of uh, a culture of um, 
people being rather too easily offended and basically shutting down dialogue in the name of identity politics or political correctness. And I just wondered, uh, before we uh, move on, if you could touch on how close to, um, you know, I... From my point of view, in a British university and in my experience of being in British universities, that narrative seems much overstated. Um, in you know, it's not, it's never really been my. Um, yes, you do come across people who are uh, strongly feminist, or lots of the people that I've interviewed on this uh, on this very show, for example, have had particular agendas um, that you know the, the members of the alt right would. Uh, broadly class as being i guess social justice warriors that's, that's the term that i've seen used uh, with increasing frequency even in the mainstream media now um but i would never say that there's ever been much of a, a pressure or a how can i say this a, a shutting down of open dialogue in the universities that i've been to and i just wanted to ask this question because it, it does seem to be something being levied against universities that they have pushed this agenda of identity politics to the point where normal everyday people outside of those bubbles are you know resenting it to the point where they'd elect a man like donald trump as the president so i just thought some food for thought i I don't know uh, how you'd react to that sure I, i think there's probably a connection between these two factors that you've mentioned here And there are, as you, you rightly noted, many, many factors that have gone into this and, and everyone is scrambling to figure out what the, the, the dominant or the, the prominent factors are. I think there uh, has been a, in, in a time of felt economic recession, a nostalgia for 1950s American prosperity. And I think that that nostalgia has slipped over in a number of ways into uh, from an economic nostalgia to a cultural nostalgia that is resistant to uh, the increasing multiculturalism of the United States, the increasing ethnic diversity, as well as the increasing power and prominence of uh, women in the nation. And I think what we're still trying to to figure out is how it is that people who had legitimate cause for anxiety, fear, uh, anger, and resentment with respect to economic issues uh, allowed that to manifest in cultural rhetoric that the United States has explicitly disavowed in public for the past 60 years. And, and I, I think that the U.S. Is, is going to need to come to grips with the fact that an American nation with deep roots in the Judeo-Christian religious tradition of love and kindness, especially for the most vulnerable among us, and the modern political tradition of liberal democracy, including the achievements of the women's rights and the civil rights movements, uh, has elected a transparently immoral man with streaks of fascism. Mm -hmm. With respect to to what's really going on on university campuses, I, I think that this gives some credence to the ideas that have been discussed recently with respect to the crisis in the humanities. And the, the way that I think about this election is that if you're a teacher and you give the class an easy test and half the class fails, there's something wrong with the way you've been teaching the material. And I think humanists especially are, are going to have to think about the way that, that we've been teaching the material and that there's something wrong more generally outside of humanists with the way that we've been doing moral and civic education in this country. I, I don't think any humanity scholars are, are interested in, in saying, I told you so, but I, I do think that the uh, election of Trump is evidence of what a lot of humanity scholars have been thinking for the past 10 years, that there's a need to foster a widespread ability for individuals to interpret information 
due to the information overload that we each now receive in the digital age. And uh, I, I think from my perspective, the election of Trump validates that that call for concern. Sure. Okay. Well, maybe we can uh, return to to some of those things uh, in due course. I'm I'm aware we've uh, drifted a little bit uh, far <laughs> from Shakespeare here. So uh, let's uh, let's bring it back to to um, the essay that you wrote recently called "Public Shakespeareanism." Can you tell us first what is Shakespeareanism? And have there been any examples of it during the insanity of the 2016 U.S. presidential election? Yeah, I mean, with the term uh, Shakespeareanism, I'm, I'm simply thinking of, of writing about Shakespeare. And, of course, as we all know, most writing about Shakespeare occurs uh, in an academic setting and academic journals. But there's been an unprecedented pattern that I've seen in, in the past election cycle of appropriations of Shakespeare. On the one hand, there have been appropriations of Shakespeare by enthusiastic students who have used the material that they've been looking at in class to go out and make political commentary. That sort of thing has happened uh, since time immemorial. But there's also been a pattern of well-informed professional literary scholars who have thought for one reason or another, it's a good idea for them to go out and do Shakespeare criticism, not in an academic journal, but instead in a public venue and in a, in a way that's accessible to a wide range of people. Uh, so the, the model here is, is obviously the, the, the public intellectual who uh, transcends the boundaries of, of academia. One area of context to consider here, I think, is the, the rise of Shakespeare as required reading in American high schools. Shakespeare's recently been codified as the only author required by name in the Common Core Standards in the United States that uh, must be read in high school. And, and to me, what's what I'm starting to uh, sense in conversations with my students is that even at the high school level, Shakespeare is becoming a discipline unto itself in the way that English is a discipline or psychology is a discipline. Shakespeare is starting to become a discipline, which means that there's a broad common knowledge of Shakespeare's plays, which also means that Shakespeare and references, appropriations, allusions to Shakespeare can be done um, in public as a mode of, as a language of communication in a, in a public sense. Mm. Um, so, for me, I've, I've, I've uh, seen a number of examples of, of what I call public Shakespeareanism. The, the first one that I saw was Andrew Cutrafello at, from uh, University of Northwestern, I believe, who in an essay about uh, – he, he started an essay looking at allusions to Shakespeare in Trump's books, which are um, – many of which are, are ghost-written. Uh, some ghostwriters say they're all uh, entirely written by the, the, the ghostwriter. <laughs> but the the allusions to Shakespeare in Trump's books are, are pretty standard examples of uh, citational opportunism, of cultural appropriations, of Shakespeare's capital in order to make a point. But Kutrafella did did a really interesting move in his essay where he then shifted to using an analysis of a scene from Shakespeare, and this is where uh, Cloton talks about, he, he believes uh, in symboling that, that his name should uh, inspire fear in his enemies. Uh, Kutrafella uses that analysis to interpret the way that Trump relies upon his name, the value of his name, the belief that his name should uh, not only convey greatness, but also should inspire fear. So, so Trump was never talking about symboling. So, so what, what is Kutrafella doing here? He's, he's using an interpretation of a situation in Shakespeare, and he's mobilizing that interpretation to critique a similar situation in a modern public event. And this is what I think of as public Shakespeareanism. It's, it's the use of knowledge that is derived from the study of Shakespeare's texts to serve as a lens through which to look at and interpret the unfolding events of modern life. Th this, uh, in, in 
the UK has been theorized under the name of presentism, which was mm -hmm. positioned as something of a more politically activist uh, response to what was seen as kind of academic detachment in new historicism. In new historicism, uh, politics was often the content of what was analyzed, but in with presentism, uh, politics is kind of the explicit purpose of the writing. And I think perhaps presentism has found an American cousin in this kind of public Shakespeareanism, which we've seen from folks like Coutrefello, uh, Charles McNulty, the theater reviewer for the Los Angeles Times, did an instance of public Shakespeareanism. Paul Hamilton, who's an American academic now living over in the UK, uh, did an instance where he talked about both Brexit and the uh, Trump effect during the, the campaign of Trump. And Hamilton's essay was really interesting to me because he identified uh, what he called the emergence of the clown politician. So mm -hmm. he wasn't looking at uh, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson as a tragic figure, but instead as a comic figure who is placed in a tragic setting. That is to say a high cultural uh, situation of politics. And Hamilton discussed the ways that by exploiting some of the techniques that Shakespeare's clowns, he talks specifically about Iago and Falstaff, by exploiting some of their uh, techniques, their rhetorical techniques, politicians such as Trump and Johnson can, um, in a sense, turn their entertainment value into political value. And I think one of the interesting things for, for Shakespeareans to think about is the ways that we respond to Shakespeare's characters are often not logical, that they're often, we find a giddy excitement when Richard III talks to us in the audience, or we see Falstaff as a uh, great, fun, fantastic character, even though we wouldn't trust him with our children. Um, and, and so Hamilton kind of, kind of mobilized this idea of the clown as a literary, specifically dramatic device and the ways that an audience reacts to the clown to think about how uh, in politics, which is unavoidably theatrical, uh, there are performances that are done for the general public and the general public is in the position of the dramatic audience who responds to those performances, uh, sometimes in ways that defy logic. Uh, just, uh, I, I must mention, uh, my uh, undergraduate mentor, Peter Herman, out at San Diego State University, also wrote an instance of public Shakespeareanism where he talked about the scene between Malcolm and Macduff in Act Four of Macbeth, where Malcolm describes all the evils that he could possibly be, uh, and Macduff goes along with these because however evil he envisions Malcolm is, that Malcolm will help Macduff defeat their common enemy, which is Macbeth. Uh, Herman positions this as uh, a lens through which to look at the situation of the Republican Party uh, that despite all of the uh, transparently immoral uh, discrediting things that Donald Trump did, continued to endorse Donald Trump and Peter Herman's point was basically that uh, if you're willing to uh, overlook uh, all of the immoralities of someone, then according to that scene from Shakespeare, what Shakespeare seems to be suggesting is that um, you're no better than this, this uh, person, this evil person that you imagine as your opponent, uh, who you're trying to replace. Uh, finally, perhaps the most well-known instance of public Shakespeareanism uh, came from Stephen Greenblatt, who wrote in the New York Times an essay uh, on Richard III, which never mentioned Trump by name, but uh, clearly positioned Trump as an analogy to Richard III, who, through circumstances in his life, has developed a, a on the one hand, fragile personality, and on the other hand, uh, aggressive narcissism that he allows uh, that 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 he he uses to exploit a uh, suffering uncertain nation but what was most interesting about greenblatt's essay is that it it did this characteristic move that i see in public shakespeareanism which is a shift from character criticism to cultural criticism that is to say mm -hmm. a shift from 
identifying which Shakespearean character most matches up with the modern political figure. So we've seen arguments, for example, that a Hillary Clinton is a Lady Macbeth, a a uh, woman who is ambitious for power and who disavows traditional feminine characteristics and is willing to do anything. That's that's kind of character criticism, uh, appropriations of Shakespeare. But what Herman and Pete, uh, what Peter Herman and Greenblatt and a number of the other public Shakespeareans that I've uh, looked at have done is to say. It's not about the character of the politician, but it's about the circumstances of the culture. What is it that allowed a Richard III to come to power? What is it that audiences respond to positively about a Falstaff or an Iago? And so I think that attention to the cultural situation as opposed to the moral character of the person involved is one of the key elements of, of public Shakespeareanism. Yeah, a number of these... This um, sort of thing is fascinating to me, uh, Jeffrey. Some of the theoretical moves made um, that allow that sort of uh, Shakespeare to real life comparison to be made, whether through the characters or through the the culture. Um, I I do have two, uh, I guess, questions, comments. Um, they're not quite related, but the first one is a is a thought that I had just in passing where you said, uh, you know, Shakespeare is now the only named author who has to be read by by everybody in school. And that also, I believe, remains the case here in um, Britain as well. And indeed on university courses and, you know, on the degree program I teach on, Shakespeare is the only compulsory uh, named author, as it were. Um, and one of the curious things about the, the modern world um, is that even though the, the internet has opened up information in, you know, uh, unprecedented new ways, in another way, it's kind of signaled the death of a homogenous culture. You know, the, the days where um, uh, we, you know, the days where 50 million people would be watching the same television program just because it happened to be on have gone, you know, uh, because everybody has an on-demand culture. They all have their own kind of little silos, their own special interests. So in another way, culture is the most heterogeneous that, it, that it's ever been. You know, people uh, don't have a vast reservoir of cultural um, cachet, as it were. I mean, I, even I, I find in the time that I've been uh, teaching that, you know, the number of references my students will get have diminished over time to the point where you know i could mention the ghost ghostbusters or something and half of them have never seen it or have even heard of it um and, and I, I don't know if that's a uh, symptom of me getting old or a symptom of the fact that fewer and fewer people i just don't think the internet is a mechanism for i i guess disseminating um uh how can i put it a kind of cultural cachet in that in that way did, did, did you know what I'm talking about here, Jeffrey? I mean, I, th I think back to when I was a, a, a child and I'd watched something um, and I, I've seen it. I watched the, th the thing and I knew about it just because it happened to be on maybe just before a show that I wanted to watch. Whereas now, if you're a 18 year old, you would go straight to the thing that you want to watch. Right. So it, 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 in, in effect, it means that the number of cultural references have actually reduced, which uh, makes me wonder if this um, uh, notion of Shakespeareanism is actually going to be something that increases over time as he becomes one of the last bastions of culture that everybody knows. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And um, to, to add on to that, I, I ask my, my students, um, who are usually first-year students, you know, I ask, how many of you have read Shakespeare? And they all raise their hands. And then we talk a little bit about what Shakespeare have you read? And it's always the tragedies. It's always Hamlet, mm -hmm. Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar. And on the one hand, it's, it's a little bit strange to me to think that at a time in their life where they're perhaps most uh, <laughs> mentally unprepared to handle the thoughts that are put on the table in Shakespearean tragedy, they're being overloaded with Shakespearean tragedy. On the other hand, you have to ask kind of what Shakespeare are they getting? And, and what is the Shakespeare that is being uh, perpetuated and codified in, in this uh, cultural uh, 
perpetuation of, of Shakespeare. Uh, on, on the other hand, I, I will uh, point out a, a different perspective with respect to the internet, social media, and what you're uh, describing here as the uh, so sometimes called the siloing of, of uh, opinions and attitudes and, and perspectives. When I think about public Shakespeareanism, I think it's doing something very similar to what modern dress performances modern dress adaptations have done in the past. Things like Richard Longcrane's Richard III, which positions that Shakespearean text in terms of uh, 1930s fascist European politics, or things like House of Cards, which positions Richard III in the context of modern American politics. What is interesting to me is that public Shakespeareanism uh, in this past election cycle took place almost exclusively online in journals, uh, not in journals, but rather in online venues, which allowed for the uh, publication of non-conventional modes of analysis and interpretation, such as Shakespeare-inflected political commentary. To me, I think that feels kind of like a democratization of Shakespearean appropriation, because it's no longer simply the high cultural elite who run in theater circles that now have access through modern dress performances to the ongoing relevance and meanings of Shakespearean texts in modern political life. And it's not simply the people who can afford to the, the price of the ticket to go to such performances that have access to this mode, which is drawing attention to the ways that Shakespeare continues to resonate in the events of modern political life. So I, I see that as, as, as a, a, uh, a, a silver lining on, on the Internet here. Sure. I mean, well, the, I mean, the, the Internet is great if you if you kind of know how to use it and so on, I think it's wonderful. <laughs> uh, you know, don't know. Uh, but um, I, I'm just saying it, 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 it has had some, some, some other consequences, I guess, a, a strange, Absolutely. a strange, you know, when I do that show of hands business, I mean, apart from literally Harry Potter, I don't know anything else that would get a universal show anymore. Do you know what I mean? Where, whereas I, whereas I feel like maybe, 10 years ago I would have had a wider range of things that I could easily um I could easily draw on that everybody has seen um anyway uh there is something else some a a theoretical underpinning to to a lot of this that I want to uh ask you about because it seems to me that in order to be able to make these kinds of moves um regardless of, of where these things are published it, you are basically putting forward some notion of a human nature that doesn't really change across history and across culture and across time. Um, yes, you could say, well, that some of the specifics have, you know, have changed, but in order, you know, you are basically saying, well, given these sets of circumstances, people are going to be a little bit like this, and there's enough commonality between, uh, you know, Shakespeare's time and our time in order to be able to make that move, which to me seems sharply at odds with new historicism and cultural materialism and indeed the entire historicist paradigm that we have uh, come to know in our discipline. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts on on that. Certainly wouldn't uh, argue in any sense that there's a, a universal uh, human nature that, that is represented in Shakespeare's plays that he captured that no one else uh, captured before him and no one else has captured since him that uh, we see manifesting in modern life. I I, I don't uh, get that sense. I certainly don't get the sense that Shakespeare's universal is uh, applicable and true and good for all people in all places and all times. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do get the sense that Shakespeare has a very versatile text. I get the sense that his text has applicability in a number of different situations. And I think one of the interesting features of the Shakespeare world is that he was someone who loved to adapt other people's stories, and he is also someone who other people love to adapt. And and so you get an idea of uh, recurrence in the, the, the stories that are told, that it seems like there's an identification of certain situations that are... Uh, 
repeated time and time again. And here I think the real opportunity is for literary critics who know how to talk about literary forms to think about how our terms can be used, which are derived from the study of literature and, and forms in literature to describe uh, things that happen in life, uh, whether political or otherwise. And, and this is where that, that Paul Hamilton essay, I think, really shows the, the promise of uh, someone who is familiar with literary terms where, where Paul Hamilton was able to say these modern clown politicians are figures who are culled from comedy that are placed in situations of tragedy. And that's what produces this uh, bizarre, unanchored feeling of the clown politician. I think this is a good time to bring up another essay that you wrote, uh, Jeffrey, called Why Shakespeare? Um, since we've started talking about this, I have to ask you, why Shakespeare? Oh, holy smokes. Uh, the, the title of my, my class that I teach at Harvard is also Why Shakespeare? And the reason I teach that class uh, is because I don't fully know the answer to that question. I think if I ever did know the answer, I'd no longer be interested in the class. Um, but one part of the answer, I think, um, a, a working thesis that, that I've considered here is that there exists a significant relationship between the ways in which Shakespeare wrote his plays, which I'm going to call ironic, and the political values and commitments of modern society, namely liberalism. And, and the, the connection I see is this, is that, and this is not a particularly uh, original interpretation of Shakespeare, and I think the, 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 the unoriginality of it is what speaks, hopefully, to its, um, its, its truth, mm -hmm. is that the way that Shakespeare wrote his plays, as has been argued, um, really starting with William Hazlitt and John Keats, Hazlitt's ideas about disinterestedness, Keats's famous comment about Shakespeare's negative capability, which has informed what I think of as kind of the modern consensus on Shakespeare's artistic method, which was argued by Ibsen talking about ambiguity, by Norman Rabkin talking about complementarity, um, by a number of others, including Greenblatt, who talks about Shakespeare's strategic opacity, that Shakespeare had this, uh, it seems, systematic desire to write himself, his own identities, his own perspectives, his own beliefs out of his plays, uh, resulting in a text that was very open to interpretation. That's, that's kind of one of the reasons that we all love Shakespeare is because we can project so much of our own lives uh, into the text, even though it might be very historically alien to us. That this was a strategic move on Shakespeare's part. I believe uh, that it was in terms of uh, that it was a pedagogical strategy reminiscent of, of the Socratic method, right? Which as opposed to telling people uh, what they should think, what they should do, instead asks people, uh, what do you think? What would you do? Which again, uh, allows for a dramatic text uh, that is not only more entertaining, is not only more uh, we have a en more energetic and more involved response to, but that I think allows for a more compelling ethical education. And here's, here's the paradox. John Keats was the one who said that we hate literature that has a palpable design upon us. Mm. And the, the paradox is that when authors, literary or otherwise, uh, transparently try to moralize in their literature – it is less entertaining literature and therefore less likely to succeed in its moral design. In contrast, when authors uh, don't explicitly moralize, they have a better chance of achieving a moral education in their audience uh, who will not be uh, opposed to the, the, the text that clearly has a, a design upon them. So, so this, this aspect of Shakespeare's text, which again, is, is, seems to me something that is clearly uh, present that a number of people have talked about, which I'm going to call irony. Um, 
irony in the sense of feigned ignorance, irony in the sense of I might believe strongly something, but I'm not going to in my text or in my language uh, give away what it is I believe, what it is I, I think uh, you should do, what you should believe. So that sense of irony to me seems very appealing to the modern liberal sensibility, which takes as one of its central tenets the belief that individuals uh, should not have their conscience dictated to them by the state. That in the liberal tradition, going back to uh, John Milton, uh, that the highest uh, good is the freedom of thought, is the freedom of the individual who is the seat of moral authority, as opposed to the state who will dictate from the top down uh, what people should think, feel, and do, that a, a Shakespearean text, which is what I've called ironic, which allows for that openness, allows for that interpretive experience, is more appealing to modern liberals of the persuasion uh, that the individual should have the freedom to decide for him or herself uh, what counts as truth, what we should do. Um, as long as, according to the, the kind of liberal policy, as long as the, those activities don't infringe upon someone else's ability to decide for him or herself uh, those things as well. So, so the, the argument is, is that Shakespeare's ironic mode made his drama uniquely appealing to the political liberals who were at the forefront of English culture in the early 19th century, thinking specifically of Hazlitt and Keats Hazlitt, who was a religious dissenter, whose father was trained under Adam Smith, uh, who spent some time in America and said that his sympathies were American and Republican, uh, and religiously, even though he was an atheist, uh, looking back to um, Miltonic humanism. And Keats, who was also raised in a setting of religious dissent, uh, the schools that he went to, whose political verse, or rather whose verse is much more political than is usually acknowledged, uh, at least in the reading of Keats by, by Nicholas Rowe, one of his prominent uh, biographers. And, and so I, I see that relationship between Shakespeare's irony and the modern liberalism of the people who, on the one hand, were responsible for the reading of Shakespeare that we now generally recognize as uh, consensus and then, on the other hand, we continue to think about liberalism in the same way that Hazlitt and Keats thought about liberalism, just as we continue to think about Shakespeare in the same way that Hazlitt and Keats thought about Shakespeare. Now, that's very uh, interesting to, to me, uh, because, I mean, when I think about the, the long history, I guess, from uh, Hazlitt and Keats to now, uh, in Shakespeare studies, there, there have been several key moments in which uh, I guess Shakespeare has been appropriated as a voice not of liberalism but of author authoritarianism. Of course, I'm thinking of the moment of uh, E.M.W. Tilliard and various others um, in the 1930s and 1940s who kind of made uh, Shakespeare a voice for the great chain of being. Um, they, in, I mean, that in turn was attacked by um, a set of uh, critics who I'd broadly call liberal humanists, um, one of whom was uh, was Emson. I would also cite people like A.P. Rossiter, who has a very similar idea to the one that you've been describing. He talks about uh, a two-eyed playwright. Uh, uh, exactly, the, the essential ambivalence in Shakespeare. Yeah, uh, also somebody like Wilbur Sanders or Moody Pryor, these are critics of the of the kind of 1960s, I guess, who strongly rejected the uh, the kind of Tilliard thesis of uh, you know the, the 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 Tudor myth, as it were, um, the Elizabethan age. But then there was, in turn, as we know, quite a reaction against that in the 1980s, especially, where we then got new historicism. And if you go back and read some of those. Uh, new historicist texts, far from getting a liberal Shakespeare, you get a kind of, you know, nightmare totalitarian state Shakespeare in, uh, you know, books like uh, Power on Display by Leonard Tenenhouse or uh, 
Goldberg's uh, James the First and the Politics of Literature, uh, and various other various other um, uh, books that were written in the eighties and nineties, which kind of strongly push the you know reject this idea of a of a liberal Shakespeare. They, they tend to see him as a royalist, a conservative, a kind of uh, sneering apologist for the ruling class. Um, and then, well, seemingly it may have slipped back again in recent years to, to, to this. Um, do, I mean, do, do you have any uh, thoughts about that? Do you, do you, do you just think that uh, the moments in uh, the kind of reception of Shakespeare in which he's been kind of made to be the voice of power have been, I guess, appropriations that don't truly reflect uh you know his his essential qualities or how, how would you uh react to that statement jeffrey no I, I don't think so and and i think for me the 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 point of emphasis with respect to this idea about shakespeare and modern liberalism is that it's it's not about the the fact that there is or is not um content in shakespeare's plays that suggests a sympathy for republicanism in the early modern age. It's instead about how the artwork works. Mm -hmm. And the the way that I think about your, your question is that the fact that Shakespeare can be appropriated for either uh, conservative or liberal purposes, which is absolutely true, doesn't mean that Shakespeare is neutral in this situation. I, I, I think the design of the plays, which makes them appropriable in those various ways, nudges Shakespeare a little bit away from uh, the conservative ideology, which must necessarily uh, claim its truth, that, that, that the fact that Shakespeare uh, leaves things open to interpretation doesn't make him neutral, but instead puts him on the side of uh, resistance, I guess I would say. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, uh, I've put it to a few of my interviewees recently that Shakespeare had an extraordinary capacity for empathy of understanding where people are um, uh coming from despite their flaws uh and that seems to me quite important for the present moment in which it feels like our uh, societies in britain and america are so polarized uh, you know we've, we've talked uh, a number of times about silos or bubbles um and it and it seems like now you have two sets of people who just don't see eye to eye on anything um you know one side calling the other well in hillary clinton's phrase a basket of deplorables and uh, the other side calling uh, their opponents liberal elites or people who are out of touch with the real world or, or whatever else, uh, whichever way it, way it's been uh, characterized. It seems to me that they're not really talking to each other or understanding each other or having much empathy for each other. Um, now, I imagine, uh, and this could be a somewhat romantic uh, notion on my part, that if Shakespeare were written a character like Donald Trump, he wouldn't have made him a stock buffoon. I think he may have given us a greater sense of why he is the way he is, why people voted for him. Um, so what do you make of that assessment? Am I being too uh, charitable either A to Shakespeare or B to Donald Trump? <laughs> no, I, I think that's that's probably fair. I think Shakespeare had an a, a habitual interest in uh, looking at the story behind uh, people that we would usually discount as villains uh, from the word go. Uh, Richard III is the most obvious example. Um, for me, the most troubling example is Angelo in Measure for Measure, who Gosh, yeah. immediately after we learn that he has become sexually aroused by the moral virtue of Isabella, uh, he, Shakespeare gives him a soliloquy which to me is profoundly disturbing and I wish it didn't happen because what Shakespeare is asking us to do in that moment is to understand, empathize with someone who is going to be a sexual predator and not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, but thinking about the current election, I have no interest really in empathizing with, uh, racist and misogynists in the sense of, uh, 
sharing their feelings. I, I, less polemically, I, I am very interested in understanding how and why people experiencing suffering, anxiety, fear, anger, and resentment manifest those feelings in racism and misogyny. And I think you're absolutely right that, that Shakespeare's text uh, forces us, especially in the most uncomfortable situations, such as the one with Angelo or with Richard III, who is, let's remember, a child murderer, who we're asked to see the world from his perspective and see his side of things. That's not something that we want to do. That's very interesting. I mean, the, the idea that empathy can in itself be t- t- troubling uh, is an interesting note. For some reason, I'm reminded of the moment. And uh, you may have to cast your mind back a, a, a while for this. Do you remember when Saddam Hussein was captured? <laughs> uh, he was kind of mm-hmm. like in a hole. And, um, you know, it, it, there was a moment where I thought, I felt some. I felt some pang of human understanding for Saddam Hussein in that moment, despite the fact I know he was a mass murderer and a dictator and a terrible tyrant and all the, all of the other things. And I and that's just an interesting thought that those kind of moments of empathy can actually be troubling or even unhelpful morally for us. Yeah, but um, but. but. You know, your your question is is the right question, right? If 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 Trump were a Shakespearean character, how would Shakespeare have handled him? What what would we have heard Trump say in soliloquies that were directed only for the audience? You know, would he be like the Richard the Third, who at the end of Act One, Scene Two, after the wooing of Anne, kind of gleefully celebrates his wickedness and his ability to deceive the world? Would he be more like a Macbeth, who is? Uh, anxious about his uh, security, the security of his power. Um, you know, the, the, there are, are various Shakespearean characters and soliloquies that, that we could try to map onto that situation. Mm. I know, well, I mean, like I said, I've been kind of studying this pretty intently. And one of the impressions that I get, um, sadly, uh, for Donald Trump is that he has an extraordinary capacity to, I guess, or lack of capacity for introspection of any sort, doesn't want to confront his past, doesn't doesn't really reflect on himself ever, from what I can understand about him, um, which would, I guess, put him more in the category of, I don't know, I mean, Iago, I mean, I hate to say it, but, um, did, you know, did, did, I'm thinking more along the, the lines of a motiveless malignity or a, or a kind of... A, did you understand where I'm coming from here? That I I wonder if Trump wouldn't wouldn't have any soliloquies because I, I guess he's not soliloquizing. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, and and, and you know the the other thing which we've we've kind of touched upon here is is I think that one of the things Shakespeare scholars, drama scholars, literary scholars are uh, positioned to do here is to think about the. Uh, theater of politics as theater is is to think about the way that political speeches work uh, like dramatic soliloquies that you have a character who in in many cases especially in this most recent election is donning a a persona is playing a a part uh, who is speaking directly to the audience and is using rhetorical strategies to um to, to convince that audience to respond in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think uh, that, that literary critics and, and specifically Shakespeare critics, uh, whose his plays are, are so obviously um, about politics in so many cases, have, have an opportunity here to help uh, commentators think through the way that rhetoric and theatricality are playing a bigger part in modern American politics uh, since the rise of radio, the rise of television, the rise of the digital media, that uh, all of these things uh, point to the need for the kind of knowledge sets that literary scholars have. Yeah, I mean, one of the recurring tropes, I think, in in Shakespeare is that whenever we see a crowd that is uh, being persuaded one way or the other, it tends not to be logic that is the thing that's persuading them. It's the, as Aristotle would say, the the, the pathos and the ethos. Um, I'm thinking specifically of that scene in Julius uh, Caesar, maybe uh, Jack Cade. Yeah. Um, several other moments. Several other moments where it, I mean, it it seems like 
um, the, uh, the 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 crowd, and and of course in uh, in Richard the Third. Um, but it, it seems like the crowd is moved more by their feelings, by their emotions or their intuitions, than by cold uh, reason, which is something that we've seen, especially in this in this election. So. Absolutely, but but not just the crowds on stage, also the crowds in the audience. That, for example, Richard III, the way that Richard III works as a literary text is that we have someone who is transparently villainous, who celebrates his villainy, and for some reason we don't hate him because of that, but we find ourselves kind of giddily excited and in a bizarre friendship with him on the one hand, simply because he speaks to us directly and acknowledges our presence in the audience on the other hand, because he has such energy and verve. And on the third hand, because he's so talented at manipulating others around him. And we like to watch the destruction of fools until in act four of Richard the third, when he becomes King and he largely stops speaking to us in the audience. And we realize I've allowed myself to go on with this, sociopath up to this point i've i'm complicit now uh in the horrible things that he's done and now i must have i I must figure out how to deal with that and i I think um figuring out how to deal with the issue of complicity in the most recent presidential election is something that a lot of people are going to be thinking about yeah and and i I mean on the subject of richard III, one thing i've often thought about is the the blandness of Henry of Henry Tudor. Um, I mean, yes, we have turned on Richard by the end of it, but are we really rooting for for Henry? I mean, he he doesn't really give us a lot to work with, does he? He doesn't. Um, I don't, I don't know. That's bit that's a, a something else I wonder about is that sometimes the, the the more moral, the more overtly moral characters are the harder ones to like in a way. Um, I mean, you you mentioned Falstaff. One exercise I've done time and again with my students is is to ask, you know, is to put Falstaff on trial and to and to really uh, think about whether Hal was right to banish him at the end. But it it feels hard to side with Hal in that moment, even though he may technically be be right. It just seems cold. Do you know what, do you know what I'm saying? And I get that similar sort of coldness from Henry Tudor. So. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if if anything, uh, this most recent election shows that we often make political decisions uh, based not on who has the best policies for the most number of people in the country, but based upon reasons that have nothing to do with uh, running a government. All right. Well, I will come to my final question now, uh, Jeffrey, which is what developments do you hope to see from Shakespeare cities in the coming years? Uh, I, I am excited about the continued interest in the ongoing relevance and, and appropriation of Shakespeare that is being covered by journals such as Borrowers and Lenders. I'm, I'm very interested. I, I don't think we have fully gotten to the bottom of the audience-oriented criticism and theory related to Shakespeare that was prominent in uh, 1960s, 70s, 80s reader response style uh, criticism. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in thinking about the way that the audience uh, of Shakespearean texts works both on an individual level and on a cultural level and thinking about the, the origins and the development and organization and the networks and the institutions of, of readerly behavior that generate interpretive difference and consensus and disagreement and negotiation and change in various ways. Um, I'm, I'm also interested in thinking about specifically with respect to, to your podcast, the relationship between Shakespeare and theory. And, and there's always been uh, in the past 40 years, a tendency to read Shakespeare using theory, to use theory as a lens through which we can interpret Shakespeare um, as if, and I say this as a you know Shakespeare lover myself, as if the interpretation of Shakespeare's texts were the end-all, be-all of life. I'm interested in uh, work that reverses that trajectory. And so I'm interested in readers who take knowledge that's derived from Shakespeare's texts 
and say, how can we theorize outward from this? And so I, I think uh, a lot about someone like Sigmund Freud, who used Shakespeare's Richard III as a uh, way to think about his clinical patients when theorizing a psychological concept that he called the exceptions, those who are uh, who view themselves as disadvantaged by nature and therefore excuse themselves from the laws and the morals that govern civil society. That's, that's a case not of using theory to read Shakespeare, but of using Shakespeare to do theory. Uh, Laura Bowen also has a, a very prominent essay in uh, anthropology, one of the founding essays of anthropology, uh, Hamlet in the Bush, which uses this the, the, the inability of Hamlet to translate across cultures to think about uh, the, the problem with notions of cultural universals. Um, another example is there's been social scientific work done on what's called the Romeo and Juliet effect, which is uh, someone who has tried to empirically test whether parental influence in a love relationship intensifies the feelings of romantic love between uh, the, the couple involved. I think instances like that where we can take observations derived from Shakespeare and then look at them in a more uh, scientifically empirical way and, and ask, is this knowledge uh, really knowledge? Is it, can we uh, extrapolate from this knowledge in, in a useful way? And so, so, uh, so in terms of this idea of, of using Shakespeare for theory, I, I'm interested in using Shakespeare to, to formulate abstract ideas about human experiences that can then be scientifically tested um, by combining the the kind of imaginative analytical resources of the humanities with the rigorous empirical commitments of the sciences, and and then just as a a final note here, um, maybe somewhat whimsical or somewhat sentimental, but I think about the fact that with the increasing multiculturalism in the United States uh, and the decline of Christianity as the traditionally as what is traditionally administered the moral education of Americans, I think educators, literary critics, and specifically Shakespeareans can and uh, will need to play a more prominent role in the moral education of the country. Jeffrey Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you, Nima. It's been a pleasure.